Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us again. This week, the court handed down two opinions, leaving us with 14 to go. Seems pretty certain at this point that the term will extend into July. Yeah, I, I somehow don't see them releasing 14 opinions on Monday. That, that just seems like a lot. I hope not. Before we review this week's opinion, we want to take a moment to wish Justice Clarence Thomas and Justice Sonia Sotomayor belated happy birthdays. Both associate justices celebrated birthdays this week, and we wish them many, many more. Indeed. Turning now to opinions, first up is Lou versus the SEC. The issue in Lou is whether and to what extent the Securities and Exchange Commission can seek the remedy of disgorgement of ill-gotten profits in an enforcement action. The petitioners in this case were two individuals who solicited money from investors to construct a cancer treatment center, but they misappropriated most of those funds. The SEC filed a civil action against them and sought disgorgement of the full amount that they had raised from investors. The issue before the court was whether disgorgement counts as an equitable remedy under the Securities and Exchange Act. The decision was 8-1, written by Sotomayor. The court said that disgorgement is a permissible equitable remedy as long as the amount is awarded to the victims and does not exceed the wrongdoer's total profits. The majority said that it is a foundational principle of equity that a wrongdoer should not profit from his wrong. A lone dissenter was Justice Thomas, who argued that disgorgement is not a traditional equitable remedy and therefore should not be recoverable. The court's second opinion this week was in the immigration case, Department of Homeland Security v. Thoracingham. In a 7-2 opinion by Justice Alito, the court held that the expedited removal process set forth in the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act did not violate the constitutional rights of a Sri Lankan national who tried to enter the United States without authorization and was detained just 25 yards from the border. The Ninth Circuit had earlier held that this procedure was unconstitutional for two reasons. First, it violated the petitioner's right to due process. And second, it had the effect of suspending the constitutional right to file a writ of habeas corpus. The Supreme Court reversed the Ninth Circuit's decision, reasoning that habeas corpus has traditionally been a means to secure release from an unlawful detention. But the petitioner in this case was invoking the writ for an entirely different purpose. He was seeking to obtain additional administrative review of his asylum claim and, ultimately, authorization to stay in the country. Alito wrote that this type of use of a writ of habeas corpus would have been unrecognizable at the time the Constitution was drafted and ratified. With respect to the due process claim, the majority wrote that, under longstanding precedent, Congress is entitled to set conditions for an alien's lawful entry and that an alien, quote, at the threshold of initial entry, unquote, cannot claim due process rights in the same manner as aliens with established connections to the country. Here, because the petitioner was detained just 25 yards from the border immediately after he had attempted to cross, he was only entitled to the procedural rights afforded to him by statute and nothing more. 
Justice Thomas filed a concurring opinion that was quintessential Justice Thomas, explaining the history of the suspension clause. Meanwhile, Justice Breyer, joined by Justice Ginsburg, wrote a concurring opinion, saying that based on the narrow facts of this particular case, the statute was not unconstitutional as applied to this petitioner. Justice Sotomayor wrote a dissenting opinion, which Justice Kagan joined, arguing that the majority's opinion rendered expedited removal proceedings functionally unreviewable, thus, quote, purging an entire class of legal challenges to executive detention from habeas review. Well, that's it for opinions this week. We're still waiting on some more of those big, juicy ones. Next up, I interview Ninth Circuit Judge Sandra Ikuta. We have the privilege today of being joined by Judge Sandra Ikuda of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. On the 23rd of this month, Judge Ikuda will celebrate her 14th year on that court. She has earned a reputation for having what I'll call judicial goggles. That is, she approaches cases, even really politicized cases, with a clear view of what the judicial role is. Judge Ikuda has shown that she is not distracted by the myriad political concerns that can arise in a case. Um, And the Ninth Circuit gets a lot of political cases, and so that reputation is well-deserved. She has also cultivated a reputation as an effective dissenter. On several occasions, perhaps most notably in Dukes versus Walmart, the Supreme Court has adopted the reasoning of her dissents in reversing the Ninth Circuit. Judge, it is a real privilege to have you with us. Well, thank you so much for those kind words. I'm really delighted to be here. So, Judge, you are in the middle of an illustrious career on the bench. You had an illustrious career in private practice. But with your permission, I'd like to go back even further and talk a bit about your career before law and before law school. You had a career as a journalist, which, in fact, saw you become the first female editor of a national martial arts magazine. Can you tell us a little bit about your journalistic career? Uh, well, thank you. I I had thought when I left Columbia Journalism School, I would uh, write thoughtful New Yorker-style magazine articles, but, but ended up, as you point out, on a national martial arts magazine. Uh, but it, I enjoyed it very much. So in, in addition to editing my company's flagship publication, which was Inside Kung Fu. Uh, I got to put together a new magazine from scratch. It was called Martial Arts Movies. Uh, And I created the entire magazine from scratch and got to interview Chuck Norris and Jackie Chan. And and I met Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was uh, just Conan the Barbarian. (laughs) I'm I'm curious. Did uh, was martial arts a passion for you that you went that way, or did 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 the pieces just fall that way? No, I was just lucky. I had uh, started freelancing for a racquetball magazine, which I also didn't play, and the publisher recruited me to be on his martial arts team. So, how did you go from a martial arts magazine to law school? Well, I have to admit that eventually I was looking for a little more intellectual stimulation. <laughs> and, and in journalism school, I had learned um, about copyright law and, and a little about First Amendment law, just what they teach journalists. And I thought it was fascinating. 
And law school seemed like a good pathway for someone who, who liked to investigate and analyze and especially to write. And did you find, did, did that prove true for you in law school? Yes, it certainly did. And I think my uh, experience in writing very simply and clearly for magazine readers stood me in good stead throughout my, my legal career. Did you ever find that um, the transition to legal writing was at all stilted compared to journalistic writing? It certainly uses a different vocabulary, but I think that the best legal writing communicates and tries to communicate clearly in English, just like a magazine story. Mm. And so you you go to law school and uh, you get out, and where do you go from there? Well, first I uh, clerked for Judge Kozinski, and, and I really had a wonderful experience with him. I know the controversy that developed in the later years, but I never saw anything unprofessional, and I learned so much from him. Uh, and, and then I went on to clerk for uh, Justice O'Connor at the Supreme Court, and and of course, that was the experience of a lifetime. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like working at the court and working with Justice O'Connor on a day-to-day basis? Well, in those days, uh, she had a full load of cases, much heavier than the, the current workload. And right at the time when I was clerking for her, she had some health problems. And this was um, during the period when she had the, the successful fight with breast cancer. But she still made time to have fun with the clerks. Um, in fact, it wasn't until I became a judge that I realized how wonderful she was with her clerks. Uh, she just had a laser-like focus on the cases. She read every brief and um, scrutinized our bench memos. And, and I, I still remember just when we were ready to to move on with the next case, she came up with more supplemental research she wanted. And of course, we, we gave it to her, but we always groaned. Um, <laughs> we, we, we had a meeting before calendar, and she would just skewer us with questions. Uh, she was just completely dedicated to reaching, reaching an answer that she was comfortable with. Did, uh, did her approach serve as a model for you when you became a judge? Certainly, there, there were certainly aspects of it that did. Uh, the way that she worked with us as clerks, I think, I've, I've always tried to emulate. She took such individual interest in us and trying to support us in our career. I really, uh, really appreciated that. How did that individual interest manifest um, for, for you? Well, she stayed, I stayed in contact with her throughout the years, uh, um, and she was always interested in my family and the development of my career. While I was there, one of the things I remember in particular is how cold I was as a Californian my first winter in, in Washington, D.C., and she went out of the way to find me coats and lend me her own coats to try to keep me warm that year. <laughs> Did uh, did Justice O'Connor have any traditions that she, uh, she did with her clerks? She was very big on traditions. 
uh, one of the big ones was field trips. So um, we went to the tidal basin to see the cherry blossoms. I remember going to the National Gallery. She had it shut down so that we could have a private viewing. Oh, wow. Uh, and we even went with her to see um, movies. I remember going with her to see uh, Driving Miss Daisy. And in fact, that was one of the few occasions when someone actually recognized her. <laughs> and then she took us on a long weekend for a camp uh, for uh, government officials. And I remember going out with her, the, the, the clerks and our spouses went out with her on, on a hike and none of us could keep up with her. Do you uh, do you follow um, any of those traditions with your own clerks? Have you made some of your own new ones? I I really don't know how she did it all. So I haven't I haven't ever taken my clerks on uh, field trips, and she would have clerk reunions every year. Um, and although I have clerk reunions occasionally, they're they're spaced out quite a bit, and um, I don't have she she would have guests at her reunions, but we don't do that. Um, she she also would make us um, lunches um, before uh, oral arguments because she wanted our help in preparing on a Saturday. And so nobody would want to eat one of my lunches. So, um, so I think a lot of her uh, traditions I've, I've foregone. But, um, but I do have my own traditions. We have, um, I have the clerks over dinner during the holidays, but my husband cooks. He's, he's the chef in my family. Uh, we have weekly lunches together, and, um, and, and one, of, one of her traditions, which I did keep, was I give out little t-shirts to my clerk's babies. We, we call them grand clerks. So besides Justice O'Connor, she clearly was a, a great influence on your career. Did you have other mentors? Well, I certainly did at my law firm, uh, Melvinie and Myers. There, there were a number of, of um, lawyers there who really helped support my career and really helped guide me and teach me. Um, I'm thinking particularly of um, Owen Olpen. He, he was actually appointed by Justice White to be a special master in a um, water law matter. And he's the one who recruited me to Melbourne. And then he was just so wonderful in promoting my career as an environmental lawyer and teaching me um, about environmental and natural resources law. Uh, and he was also one of the most talented negotiators I've, I've ever met. So, so I have to say that um, we were representing an Alaskan Native Corporation in a transaction and and despite what a great negotiator he was, he never managed to get them to schedule a meeting in Alaska. <laughs> that is challenging. Yes. <laughs> then I should also mention uh, uh, Pat Probes, who was the head of our real estate department and, and then became a managing partner. And she had sort of a blind confidence that I could start an environmental practice group, uh, which, which ended up happening. And, and I do have to mention Warren Christopher, who, who was really the epitome of leadership at O'Melveny and, and also a great support to my career. It sounds like you had a wonderful time there. I had an excellent experience at O'Melveny. Um, I, I went there just expecting to spend a couple of years there before 
going off to a smaller firm, but so I ended up staying there for over a decade. Uh, they really supported my interest in developing an environmental practice group and letting me develop um, my career. I, I moved from um, environmental aspects of real estate to environmental compliance work and and finally into environmental litigation, though that caused a lot of amusement because by the time I became a you know quote litigator, I, I had I was a partner at that point. <laughs> that is a little late to be making that kind of big career change, I suppose. <laughs> well, when I left uh, O'Malveny, I was part of the firm's white collar crime group, um, though working on environmental crime. This is really interesting. So you, so copyright law is what got you interested in law school, right? So how did you make that transition from, you know, interest in copyright to becoming an environmental compliance lawyer and then a white, an environmental white collar litigator? <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but I do know when I became a judge and I, one of my first cases was a major copyright case, I realized I had never worked on a copyright case and knew absolutely nothing about copyright law. Interesting. And so did you find that your old, uh, your old original interest in copyright law came out or did you just think, oh boy, I'm in, I'm in deep water here? <laughs> I guess both. Um, I remember telling my clerk to bring me um, the, the Nimmer treatise on copyright law. And she said, which volume? And I said, all of them. <laughs> and I ended up just reading from page one to, to the end in order to uh, get up to speed. So you become a judge. At what point in your career did you know that you wanted to be one? I didn't want to become a judge. After after clerking, I didn't think that was a good career choice for me. Um, Interesting. But as, Why as is that? Out, <laughs> um, I, I remember thinking the cases just never ended. You finished one, and then the next set of briefs came along. Uh, and I wanted to go out and solve problems and work on a range of things. It just didn't seem like uh, what I would be interested in. But, but as it turned out, uh, it's a lot more fun being a judge than a clerk. Or maybe at, at this point in, in my career, um, I discovered it was really... Uh, a, a job that I love. Tell me about your thought process going through that transition from private practice to uh, the bench. Well, first off, it, it was just a tremendous challenge intellectually because my entire career had been working as an environmental lawyer. And so the only constitutional law I kept up with was the takings clause. So I knew a lot about uh, Clean Water Act and Superfund and federal environmental law, but nothing about immigration or Social Security law, which is a huge part of my caseload now. Uh, all I can say is it was a good thing I had been a white-collar crime lawyer, or I wouldn't have known about federal criminal law or sentencing either. But, but you know, the same uh, skill set um, the, the reading, the analyzing, the writing, and even the persuading, I think, translates well from private practice to the judiciary. 
When I was working as a lawyer, you still need to find out what the law says and advise your clients about how a court is likely to rule. Uh, the, the only difference really as a, a, a judge is you get to say how the court rules, unless you're in dissent, of course. Then you, then you only get to say how you think the court should have ruled. Was there anything that was particularly difficult for you in switching hats from lawyer to judge? Other than copyright law? Other than copyright law. <laughs> uh, it, it's definitely a, a transition. I think, though, the, the aspect of private practice I missed the most was actually being able to delegate things and working in teams in, in a different way than you do as a judge. As a judge, you are the decider. You can't really delegate. You could get help from your staff and from your clerk, but you have to make the decision and, and craft the opinion. Whereas as a, uh, as a lawyer, as part of a big team and delegating work and giving people um, the responsibility, it's quite a, quite a different type of process. Would you say that you enjoy being a judge more than a lawyer or maybe, uh, you know, a different hat for every season? <laughs> uh, I certainly love being a judge. I love my private practice. Uh, it was it was fun. It was challenging. And you were helping people solve their problems. Uh, as a judge, it's an incredible honor and privilege to have that responsibility to make decisions it, it feels very um, stressful in some ways because the decisions that the court makes have such an impact on people's lives. But the challenge of finding the law and determining the best way to, to decide a case is um, the, a challenge that, that I, I welcome and, and very much enjoy. Judge, with our time left, I'd love to ask you uh, two two questions. The first is, do you have any advice that you would give to law students or uh, young lawyers at the beginning of their careers? One piece of advice I always gave to um, associates at my law firm was it's very important to manage your career and to decide how you want it to develop. Nobody will do that for you. And, and, and yet if you want to have a happy and productive life, it's so important to identify those areas of law and those type, the type of work you want to do that will keep you engaged and passionate. Mm. And our last question we ask of all of our guests, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? <laughs> well, I, I always think that um, we, we already have access to the best aspect of any Supreme Court justice. And, and that's their opinions, where we actually see the best of their thinking and their their analysis. 
So, so I think that the conversation I wish I could have is, is personal one. I, I wish I had been bold enough to have a frank conversation with Justice O'Connor where I could have learned more about her as a, as a person. Um, as a clerk and, and even as a lawyer, I was always too awed by her to, to actually engage in, in conversation of a personal nature. But I, I recently read a biography of her, and I see how much I missed in, in not having that chance. She's, she's just a complex and fascinating person, and I really admire her spirit of overcoming um, obstacles. So I, I guess that would be that would be my uh, my dream conversation. Uh, that is very interesting. That's that's one of the more unique answers we've gotten to that question. And and you're right. There is. I, I mean, I admire her for that. Uh, the the way that she has overcome, you know, her familial hardship, and that she stepped down from the bench for it. Absolutely. Well, Judge, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, and uh, I enjoyed having the chance to speak with you. Oh, my pleasure, Judge. Take care. Well, it was lovely talking to Judge Ikuda. What an interesting career path she's had. Moving right along into trivia. Joining us for trivia today is a very, very special guest, our Mies Center colleague, Paul Larkin. Paul is a senior legal research fellow, and he has had, frankly, one of the most interesting careers I've ever come across. We could spend several entire episodes just getting to know Paul and still not scratch the surface. But the reason we have him on today is quite simple. Paul is an encyclopedia of legal knowledge. And movie knowledge. And history knowledge. And sports knowledge. And basically just of knowledge generally. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you for your very kind remarks. Paul, today's trivia theme, given your extensive knowledge of both the law and film and history, is SCOTUS at the movies. Ah, okay. All right. Are you ready for this? Yes. Do I get to pick who plays me? If I get to pick, I would like Gene Hackman. Noted. I figured asking for Brad Pitt is a bridge too far. (laughs) All right. Well, our first question today deals with one of Paul's favorite movies. In the 1971 movie Dirty Harry, there's a famous scene where the district attorney explains to Harry why all of the evidence gathered against the serial killer is inadmissible in court. The district attorney cites a famous Fifth Amendment case and a famous Sixth Amendment case. What are those two cases? Miranda and Escobedo. That is correct. This is an easy warm-up question. The quote from that movie is, does Escobedo ring a bell? Miranda. The Sixth Amendment case, as Paul noted, was Escobedo v. Illinois, which would have excluded the confession Harry extracted by torture and without an attorney present. And the Fifth Amendment case was Miranda v. Arizona, which would have excluded the confession because Harry did not advise the man of his rights before the interrogation. Second question. In the 60s and 70s, the Supreme Court had movie days where the justices and their clerks would eat popcorn and watch pornographic movies, which were the subject of cases before them. What cases, and there were many, if you could name two, you win. What cases gave rise to movie day? 
Oh, uh, I imagine one was Memoirs versus Massachusetts. And let's see, uh, Ginsburg versus New York. So, you know, I don't actually have those on my list. But I'm going to trust you that those you are correct. <laughs> Some of the ones oh, that I had on our list. Yeah, you outlist our list. But for our listeners at home, if Paul outlists our list, it is a very good chance that he's right and we just missed missed cases. <laughs> but our list included Jacobellis versus Ohio, which is famous for Justice Stewart's "I Know It When I See It" line. Miller versus California and Paris Adult Theater. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, Miller adopted the standard for deciding if a particular film was uh, obscene, and Paris Adult Theater held that the First Amendment didn't protect obscene films. All right. So we are on to question number three. What 1948 case? involved Walt Disney, Charlie Chaplin, Orson Welles, the major Hollywood studios, and the Supreme Court. Oh. We can give you a hint. This was a massive antitrust case. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It had to have been an antitrust case because it wasn't until uh, you said this case was in 48? 1948. Yeah, it wasn't until 52 that they said films were protected by the First Amendment. I'm guessing it was the Paramount case. Ding, 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 ding. You got it right. It is United States v. Paramount. So in that case, there were several independent producers, including Disney, Chaplin, Wells, and the Justice Department, who were pitted against the major Hollywood studios. Um, Again, in a massive antitrust case in which the government claimed that the studio's near monopoly on the movie business violated the Sherman Antitrust Act. In a 7-1 decision written by Justice William Douglas, the court ruled in the government's favor, and ultimately, the studios lost the ability to book blocks of films and were forced to sell their movie theaters. Well done, Paul. Thank you. Next up, in which 2002 decision did Chief Justice William Rehnquist cite the movie Saving Private Ryan as an example of how the government could make a special effort to assure that a particular piece of mail reaches an individual in government custody. (laughs) Only William Rehnquist would have cited that case, and that's because he was a sergeant in the Army Air Corps during World War II and was a meteorologist. Uh, Let's see. Delivery of mail to prisoners. Seventy two. So. No, 2002. 2002. Oh, that's right. 2002. Um, Prisoners or people held? No, it would have been prisoners. Yeah, no, it would have been uh, the Chapman case. No, this was Duesenberry. Ah, Duesenberry uh, concerned the constitutional sufficiency of notice that FBI, uh, the FBI gave to a prisoner before it administratively forfeited property seized when he was arrested. Gotcha. 
the chief uh, wrote for the majority. He upheld statutory notice that the FBI gave the prisoner via certified mail and printed newspaper. He said, undoubtedly, the government could make a special effort in any case, just as it did in the movie Saving Private Ryan, to assure that a particular piece of mail reaches a particular individual who is in one way or another in the custody of the government. But, he went on, the due process clause does not require such heroic efforts. Yeah, no, personally, I, I think we, we as a country have spent billions of dollars trying to protect Matt Damon. <laughs> uh, be, between Saving Private Ryan, uh, between The Martian and Interstellar, uh, I think it's time for us just to leave him on his own. <laughs> okay, Paul, are you ready for your final question? Ready. After retiring from the high court, a Supreme Court justice played Justice Joseph Story in a movie. Can you name the movie and the former justice who played Joseph Story? The movie was Amistad. The justice was Harry Blackman. Uh, but he didn't get the same billing that Anthony Hopkins did because Hopkins played John Quincy Adams, the former president who argued that case in front of the Supreme Court. But Blackman was the one who played Story and was on the panel. You nailed it. So I, I think Paul wins this round, uh, especially considering he outlisted our list in the pornography cases. Yeah, no kidding. We're going to come back next time with some harder questions. Well, you got me on one, so I had at least one strike on me. But fortunately, I, I was able to foul off a few others. Well, Doug Paul, thanks so much for joining us. And we would certainly look forward to, to having you back again for some expert trivia. Oh, it's my pleasure. You guys have a great show. You do a great job with your guests, making everybody feel welcome and comfortable. And I'm glad to come back anytime. Well, folks, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. And please, please, please leave us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.